Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 30 to 36 this morning. Thank you, Adam. Orchestra and choir for reminding us through song that indeed our sins are many every day, unintentional sins, sins that we're not even aware of, sins of omission, sins of commission. But if you're in Christ, his mercies are more. Just a brief announcement. For those of you who may be looking into joining Lakeview, uh, we will be having a new members class this afternoon, free lunch uh, in the fellowship hall, and uh, it will go from one to four. It's our um, Discover class, and so we would love to have you be a part of that. You can hear about what we believe, what we're about, and our expectations uh, for our members. Well, if you would, look with me to get the essence of what Jesus is saying in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, we pray for those today who already know the truth and have been set free. We pray, Lord, that our faith in this truth, which we know to be the person of Jesus Christ, as he is revealed in the truth of God's word, we know that we need our faith to be stronger today. We pray that this word would nurture and nourish our faith. And for those who do not yet know the truth, who do not yet have a saving faith in this truth, we pray today would be the day where they, their eyes are open. And their souls are revived. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Blondin was a French tightrope walker and acrobat in the 19th century. And Charles made his principal fame and fortune by being the first person to walk by tightrope over Niagara Falls. 1,100 feet across, 160 feet high. The first time he did it was on June the 30th, 1859. But after that, he decided to do it in different and more dangerous ways. So for instance, Charles Blondin famously walked across Niagara Falls blindfolded. One time he walked across it in a sack. Another time he pushed a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. One time on stilts. And another creative time, midway through his walk, he sat down on the rope and he ate an omelet. And then one time he stood on the end of a chair with only one leg of the chair balancing on the rope. But most famously, he carried his manager named Harry Colcord across Niagara Falls on that tightrope on his back. And then he turned and walked back across with Colcord, his manager, 
on his back. And, and when he, he arrived to the side of the crowd, his original destination, he looked at a man who was just in awe. And he asked the man, he, do you believe that I could do this with you? He said, of course I do. I just saw you do it. He said, well, hop on. <laughs> and the man said, not on your life. <laughs> well, that's a helpful illustration for us as we approach our passage this morning. The difference between two kinds of faith. His manager, Colcord, had a committed kind of faith. He trusted in the object of his faith, and he was willing to commit the bystander had a mere intellectual kind of faith in Charles Blondin. You know, Jesus has already made it clear in this chapter that to have saving faith is to have a committed kind of faith, not just a an intellectual, mere intellectual faith, but a, but a committed kind of faith. In John 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And so the kind of saving faith that the apostle John is setting forth in his gospel is the kind of faith that's committed, that, that follows the object of one's faith. The other kind of belief is mere intellectual assent. There's no commitment. And that is a real burden in this gospel. Now, as we've seen, uh, for a broader context, Jesus has claimed rightfully to be the bread of life by which you eat and you'll never, you'll never hunger again, John chapter 6. And in John chapter 7, he has said that he is the, the fount of living water. You drink of this water and you will, you will never thirst again. And then in chapter 8, he is the light of wor the world. And, and it's by this light he overcomes our darkness. And how are we to respond to such divine claims? Well, by saving faith. And as the old catechism teaches us, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for our salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. And here it appears at face value, many have. Look with me in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him. Now, at face value, we would think that the many who believed in him here are saved. But in the Gospel of John, we must ask ourselves time and time again, was their faith legitimate? And we saw this for the first time in chapter 2 when it says at the end of that chapter, verses 23 to 25, that Many believed in Jesus because of the signs that he was committing or that he was performing. And it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Most recently, we saw in chapter 6, as Jesus speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, 
It says many of the disciples following him, not the 12, but the, the, the larger group of followers, learners. It says these are hard things he is saying. And John 6, 66 says many departed from him. These were disciples. And so Jesus knows and the apostle John knows that there is a kind of superficial faith. Now, I don't think it's unique to the Bible Belt, but I believe it is rampant in the Bible Belt, if not necessarily here at Lakeview, that's actually opposed to discipleship. A kind of superficial faith that wants nothing to do with commitment. Indeed, from this very group who believed, we're going to see in our passage today, verse 33, that Jesus will experience verbal opposition from them. And then next week, we're going to see that he experiences verbal abuse from them. Verse 48. Uh, they, they call him a Samaritan. That's the worst thing you could have called a person. And, or at least a Jewish person. And then they say, you have a demon. And then at the end of the passage, in verse 59... They're going to pick up stones to kill him because they, they, are, they believe he's committing blasphemy. It's the very people here that John says believed in him, verse 30. And so what Jesus is doing here, he is seeking to expose their superficiality. And I want you to understand that's a grace. Because there's nothing more harmful than having false security. So he is exposing their superficiality. It's painful, it's hard, but it's a grace. And the first thing we see here in, in verse 31 is that true disciples abide in the word of God. True disciples abide in the word of Christ. Look with me in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. So that's going back to verse 30. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Now some people have tried to make a distinction between a, uh, someone who's born again and, and, a, and a disciple. And someone who is saved but is not under the lordship of Christ. And then the disciple, the one who's really mature in the faith. That is not a biblical distinction. That is a Western distinction. A disciple is one who is truly saved. And he says here that there is a distinguishing mark between those who are truly his disciples and those who have a mere intellectual belief. And what is that distinguishing factor? I didn't put it in the text. Abiding in his word. To say it another way, according to Jesus in this passage, one single condition that demonstrates the truth of true discipleship, if you abide in his word. Now, in verse 37, we won't look at that today. We will look at that next week. But he will tell these so-called believers that his word 
finds no place in them. And we're going to see they're actively opposed to it. But there are many of whom it could be said Christ's word finds no place in them. It may not be that they're actively opposed to it, but it may be just that they're bored by it, indifferent to it. Now, I want you to remember why John is writing this gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he tells us why he writes this gospel. He says, I write these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you would have life in his name. And so there are some who don't even claim to be disciples. That's a word for you. Maybe you today know you're not a Christian. You know you're not a believer. This is a word for you. This word is given so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But there's other types of superficial believers that may be present today. And this gospel, this word is for you as well. So that you would have a committed belief in the Son of God. One that demonstrates true discipleship. Of course, we always know the word of God is for every believer. For those of you who are believers, this is a word for you. So that your faith will go deeper. Your love will be nourished in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that you will abide even more in the word. As you grow in your dependency and your love for Christ through his word. Now the word abide here is such an important word in the Gospel of John. For those of you that know your Bible, you know it's gonna show up again in, in John chapter 15. What does it mean to abide? It means to remain in. It, it means to continue in, to dwell in, to receive your nourishment from, uh, dependency upon, that, that's what it means to abide. And later, Jesus will say, abide in me. It's the same word. So to abide in the word of Christ is the same as to abide in Christ himself. And so just as the branch receives its life and its nourishment from the vine, so the true disciple, the true follower, the true committed believer finds his life from Christ by his word. That's what the psalmist meant in Psalm 119. If you've read Psalm 119 recently, you've seen this phrase consistently in that chapter where he says, give me life according to your word. Give me life. We receive the nourishment and the, and the nurture of God himself in Jesus Christ by the word of God. And as he says, John will tell us in John 15, 8, Jesus will say, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So in John 15, he says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. The fruit doesn't make you a disciple. The apple on the tree doesn't make it an apple tree. The apple on the tree proves that it's an apple tree. And so when you, when you bear this fruit by abiding in Christ, it doesn't make you a disciple. It shows that you are a disciple. And Jesus is saying here to abide in him is to abide in his word. And so think about this. 
When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive salvation immediately. Immediately, your sins are forgiven. But the genuineness of your faith is proved only as you or we continue to abide in the life and the word of Christ. Jesus told a parable. He gave this parable in a few of the Gospels, but um, there's a parable in Luke chapter 8. And in this parable of the seed and the soil, he speaks about four different kinds of soil. Only one of the soils is good soil. The soil represents the heart, the soul, and the spirit. And, And the seed represents the word of God. And only one of these four soils is good soil. The first soil represents the hard or the unresponsive heart. Uh, He envisions the seed being scattered on the path, because you know paths between fields uh, are are not pliable. Uh, They don't receive, it just bounces off, right? It's just a hard, unresponsive heart. Luke 8, 12, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Jesus is saying that the failure of some to respond rightly to the word of God has to do with spiritual warfare. Jesus believed in a personal devil. In fact, often on Mondays when we gather as a... As a uh, staff to pray. I pray about the previous day service and I pray that the evil one would not snatch the word that was taught in our Sunday school classes, the word that was sung in worship, the word that was read, and the word was preached. I pray that it would not be snatched away by the evil one. Luke says there are some who do fail to respond to the word of God and It's not like Flip Wilson for the older folks. The devil made me do it. You can't just blame it on the devil. But there is spiritual warfare involved. For for these kinds of people, hearing it's all that happens. It's all that happens. There's no attraction to the word of God. There's no attraction to the message. Keep in mind, this isn't referring to pagans. This is referring to people who hear. This is referring to people who come to worship and hear the word of God. But before they've made it to the car, it's gone. It's gone. R. Kent Hughes says, life for many is no more than a sports page or a fishing pole or a movie magazine and an hour at the beauty shop. There may be no obvious major sin, but there's no interest in, the, in God or his word either. It's the hardened heart. It's the, it's the unresponsive heart. There's a second kind of soil that's just as unhealthy. The shallow heart. Luke eight thirteen, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. 
and in a time of testing fall away. I do not believe you can lose your salvation. But there is a kind of superficial faith that has no root. It may be an emotional response because the music was really powerful. Or maybe the, the preacher was very charismatic and had told heartwarming stories. Or maybe they saw their friends walk in the aisle and they just got caught up in the moment. And for a season they believe. There's an initial response to the message, but it's superficial and it's without root. And then when testing comes, not if, it exposes it. The testing reveals that it has no roots and it falls away. It happens all the time. We see it, especially in a town or in a church one mile from a major college campus. We see it all the time when we're out evangelizing. Young people raised in the church, professing to be Christians, and then they come here and they believe the rite of passage is to live in a state of drunkenness and drug abuse and immorality. And, and maybe they, this person meets another person and next thing you know, they've turned their back on the fact. Or maybe it's a family, once committed, but then the children get older and, and then busyness happens and, and, and there's all kinds of functions and, and all kinds of things to do. Next thing you know, they've disappeared. It's the shallow heart. The third kind of heart that Jesus speaks of in that, that parable that I think is important to, to understanding our passage is the distracted heart. Luke eight fourteen, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. Notice, they're hearing. All, all three of these so far I've heard. There's nothing saving about hearing. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Notice that, choked by cares, riches, and the pleasures of life. Cares and riches and the pleasures of life choke the word of God. There's so many examples of that uh, that abound in the scriptures. I think about Esau who, who sold his birthright simply because he was hungry for a pot of porridge. Or how about Demas who forsook the apostle Paul and the gospel because it says he loved this present world. And the same thing happens every day in the church. But there is one so, uh, soil that is healthy soil. It's my prayer that all of us would have this kind of heart, this soil, the fertile heart, the fertile soil. Again, Jesus says in Luke eight fifteen, as for that in the good soil, they are those who hear, hearing the word, notice, and this is going to describe what it means to abide right here. Jesus is describing it right here in Luke 18 perfectly. They hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. They endure. They persevere. 
when the trials come, when the temptations for the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life come, they hold it fast. They endure with patience. Again, true believers bear fruit. It's not the bearing of the fruit that saves you. That is another religion. It's the bearing of the fruit that proves there's life. Where there's no fruit, there is no life. Now, what does it mean to abide? Well, we could preach an entire sermon on that, but just, just consider the last few chapters. It means to go to Jesus as the bread of life through his word. It's never detached from the word of God. We're not mystics. To go to Jesus as the bread of life through the word and never hunger again. It's to go to Jesus as the living water through his word and never thirst again. It's to go to Jesus as the light of the world through his word and never be overcome by darkness again. It's to know through his word that Jesus is the great I am. He is Lord. He stands over us. It's to believe through his word that he is the son of man who will be lifted up and exalted. And it's to rest in that word. It's to cling to that word, to depend on that word, to hunger and thirst for that word as you hunger and thirst for Jesus. Now, granted, as you grow, that will grow. But if there's no evidence of that, it may be. It's a superficial faith. That brings us to the next part of this passage. So true disciples abide in the word of God. The second part of this passage tells us true disciples who abide are liberated by that truth. Look with me in verse 32. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I've heard politicians quote this. Politicians who wouldn't know the truth if it hit them between the eyes. But notice it's the truth, and it cannot be detached from, verse 31, Christ's word. And what is it promised? What it promises is freedom. We just sang about that, didn't we? Freedom is one of the most glorious descriptions of salvation in the Bible. A synonym for freedom is, is, is liberation, uh, liberty. In fact, Jesus, in his first sermon that he preached in Luke, in his hometown, he proclaimed in Luke 4.18, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, I want you to note here, truth is not subjective. It doesn't start with me. Have you heard somebody say today, that's my truth? Well, truth doesn't begin with you. You're a sinner. You don't know truth. You don't live in truth. What's in your heart is sin. What's in your heart is, is rebellion. So that's my truth. And, and to be authentic is to live out my truth. You ever hear that today? Well, that's just another form of bondage. 
Jesus here is speaking about a truth that sets you free from sin. That's what the passage is telling us. And all that sin involves. So again, let's think about uh, the, in, the broader context. All that sin involves. Freedom from condemnation and death. John 5, 24, Jesus said, whoever hears my word. Again, you cannot get apart. You cannot be saved apart from the word of Christ. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into judgment. He, she, has crossed over from death to life. And so freedom from sin means to be freed from the judgment of God, the condemnation of God, and to be freed from death. Death has been arrested. They ought to write a song. It's freedom from darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not live in darkness. It means to be free from the enemy's shackles, the tyranny of the devil. We'll read that in John 17, verse 15. But all of these expressions of gospel, truth-produced freedom requires freedom from ignorance that's behind all of these other enslavements. That's why Jesus says you shall know the truth. It's in knowing the truth that you are free indeed. When our great president Abraham Lincoln signed, and this is one of the most important and glorious days in the history of the United States, when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation on January the 1st, 1863, to free the slaves, which was a wicked and satanic tyranny. They weren't free immediately. They weren't freed until they heard, until they believed that that Emancipation Proclamation had been signed. Of course, the 19th century slave, American slaves, they knew they were enslaved and and they were enslaved by no fault of their own. These people, they don't know they're enslaved, that Jesus is talking to, and it is their culpability. Note verse 33. They answered him, keep in mind, these are the people that believed in Jesus. We were already baptized them. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, have never been enslaved anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So Abraham was the constitutional father of, of the Jewish people. Now to put this in perspective, just think of our first president and the impact he has had on the founding uh, and the life of our country. George Washington has a state named after him. George Washington has our capital named after him. Do you know that there are 241 townships 
and 26 cities in the United States that bear the name of Washington. There are four forts, five mountains, and three ports that bear his name. There are bridges, there are parks, and at least 12 colleges that received their name from our first president. Now, imagine if you combined George Washington with, let's say, one of our great religious leaders, the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter, so that Washington was not only the founder of our nation, but also the leader of our faith. Even then, it wouldn't come close to the kind of reverence and awe the Jewish people had for Abraham. But this often led to presumption. They believed that because, and we're going to look at this more next week, they were Abraham's descendants, many of them believed they would automatically inherit the kingdom of God. It's a problem when any ethnicity finds their identity in their ethnicity. No matter what your ethnicity is. Because our identity, even if you're not a believer, your identity is in the fact that you're the image of God. That's more important to you than your ethnicity. You're the image of God. You can't improve on that. And if you're in Christ, your identity resides in the fact that, yes, you're the image of God, but you are, your identity is in the one who has restored your image, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. These people were finding their identity in their ethnicity, and they, they believed that they would automatically inherit the kingdom of God. It would be like someone today being raised in the Southern Baptist Church. Their, their identity is that they're Southern Baptists, and their parents were Southern Baptists, and their grandparents were Southern Baptists, and there's no way that God would turn his back on a good Southern Baptist. As a result, the, these believers, and again, these are the same people who believed in Jesus, who prided themselves on being Abraham's descendants. The word of Christ exposed their pride. The word of Christ, it does that. It exposed their idolatry. They were angered and offended by his words. The word does that. And it's a grace, actually, when it happens. And pride is always self-delusional. You know that from your own experience. And it shows itself in defensiveness. They say, we're not slaves to anyone, never have been. Ironically, at that present moment, they were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And it was because of their sin. God had promised through the Mosaic Covenant, if you will obey me in the obedience of faith, I will cast down the nations. I will bring them underneath your feet. But now they are under the tyranny of Rome. Why? Because they turned their back on Yahweh as he had provided himself in the Son of God. Their enslavement began in Egypt. And then they were redeemed out of Egypt by no merit of their own. And then if you read the book of Judges, there were seven different periods where they were under the, the thumb of, of godless nations. Why? Because of their sin. And then they went into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. 
and then the Persians, and then Greece, and again now Rome, all because of their sin. And here they say, we, we're not enslaved to anyone. But as Jesus is going to make clear in verse 34, he's not an anti-Semitic. He's a Jew himself. This doesn't just apply to, to the Jews. This sin enslavement is true of the whole world. Look with me in verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, what does it mean to practice sin? Because all of us sin. To practice sin is to be described. Your life is characterized by it. You're more characterized by your sin than you are your repentance. Your sin is more notorious than your confession and your mourning over your sin and your repentance. That's what it means to practice sin. When it comes to sin, it's not just that we will not do what God calls us to do. That's called rebellion. It's that we cannot do what God calls us to do. We have total moral inability because of our enslavement to sin. And when we ignore or we minimize the consequences of our sin enslavement, then we devalue the rescue of God's grace in the Savior, in the Messiah. And the consequences are vast. Look with me in verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So what's Jesus referring to here? Jesus is reminding them that Abraham had other children. And those children outside of the line of Isaac. And, and those other children, um, they didn't keep their privileges. So for instance, a great example is Ishmael. Ishmael was cast out. Why? Because he scoffed at Isaac, the seed of promise. Isaac was the line by which Messiah would come. And, I, and, and Ishmael scoffed. He laughed at the seed and he was cast out of the house. Jesus is saying, you can be Abraham's sons and not be accepted by God if you scoff at his son, if you scoff at the seed of promise. It's what Abraham, it's what these uh, Jews are doing here at this moment. But notice in verse 36 as we close this out. But are so. If the sun sets you free, isn't that a beautiful verse? You will be free indeed. Free indeed. Remember the context again. John 8, 24. We saw this last time. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So we are free in the sense that trusting in the truth Centered on the Son of God, Jesus Christ sets us free from dying in our sins. Again, this truth begins with the revelation of God for salvation from sin. Paul said it this way, and this is, he uses Exodus language in Colossians 1, 
verses 13 and 14. But here's what Paul says. He has delivered us, that is the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the truth that will set you free. It's the only truth that will set you free. In John 1.29, we've already seen Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How does he do it? Well, he will tell us in John 10.15, I lay down my life for the sheep. So how will he set us free? Jesus, the Lamb of God, will take our place and receive God's punishment of death, which we deserve. He will be treated on the cross as if he lived your life. And you know the life you've led. And you know many of the sins you've committed. You probably don't know most of the sins you've committed. And he will be treated as if he lived your life. And God's judgment will be poured out on him. But then he will be raised, which means... The wrath of God has been removed from those who trust in him. And instead of getting condemnation, instead of getting judgment, instead of getting wrath, we get life. We get forgiveness of sins. We get adoption into God's family. Amen, indeed. Steve Brown, in his book, Scandalous Freedom, tells an apocryphal story. It's hard to determine whether it's a true story. It should be if it's not. Of Abraham Lincoln, before the Emancipation Proclamation, going to a slave auction. And uh, there is an African-American slave on the auction. When you, when you even tell this, it's just how wicked our nation was. Where are we blind today? Where they were blind then to those sins. It's a question we need to ask ourselves as we approach election day. But he, he purchased her freedom. And so this former slave girl comes to Abraham Lincoln. She's never met him. And he says to her, you're free. She said, free? She'd never heard those words. Free to do what I want to do? He says, free to do what you want to do. Free to say what I want to say. Yes, free to say what you want to say. Free to go where I want to go. Free to go where you want to go. She said, I want to go with you. You see the point? He had sacrificially secured her freedom. And her freedom was being manifest in a new love. A new love for her redeemer. Texts like this are for Christians to awaken us again to our first love. The one who has set us free. But it's also a word to those of you that don't have that freedom but can. There's no reason to remain in the shackles of sin. When the truth can set you free. And so as Adam and his musicians come forward, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the way, the truth, and the life.
the Son of God, who will set you free. As he has set thousands upon thousands of years of captive people free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and one day from the presence of sin. All by his life, his cross, his resurrection from the grave and the gift of the Spirit who will apply the work of Christ to your heart if you will repent and believe. Won't you respond to that this morning as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.